Welcome to the GPS Training Podcast, the monthly podcast keeping you up to date with everything in the world of outdoor GPS navigation. Welcome to this month's GPS Training Podcast. It's our 38th episode. With the current lockdown taking taking place in Britain, we're doing two podcasts a month. So this podcast is going to be slightly different. I've just got one guest on the podcast, which is Kevin Ellsby. Kevin lives in East Anglia, and he did a one-to-one with Ian, my colleague, who you know is my co-presenter on the GPS Training Podcast, a couple of years ago, where he wanted to get to grips with his GPS unit. During that time, we realised what an interesting character he was. He's a fanatical photographer and he travels around the world both speaking on cruise ships and also taking photographs of the wildlife that's out there. Hope you agree it's a really nice interview even if you're not interested in photography which how can it not be it's really interesting chat about some of the trips he's done some of the photographs he's done and also how he's incorporated his use of an outdoor GPS unit. So without further ado let's get on with my interview with Kevin. The next thing on this month's GPS training podcast is a chat with Kevin. Kevin did a one-to-one with ourselves um, a few years ago now with Ian um, down in the south of England. And it is a wildlife photographer. He's got a fantastic website called Wildlife on the Web. So welcome, Kevin, to this month's GPS training podcast. Thank you, John. Those are very kind words. Thank you very much. Yes, it's a couple of years uh, now since uh, I did that one-to-one. Great yeah, fun, that one. Yeah, you did it down with Ian. And uh, yeah, he had, when I was asking Ian about guests for the podcast, he said, you want to get in touch with this guy because actually he's a very good photographer. So I thought, well, I'll get you on. That's very kind. Yes, it's great to be here. So yeah, it's back in 2018 you did. So photography, first of all, you I'll, I'll mention your website at the end, but actually I had a quick look at it before I spoke to you. An absolutely stunning. Someone who enjoys photography and actually, is ne- I'm, I'm never going to get to the standard you are. This really wide portfolio from around the world of all sorts of, well, main, well all wildlife. Um, and it's a really fantastic portfolio. How did you first get into photography? That's a very good question. Um, I grew up in North Wales and I remember at the age of about eight or nine picking up a pair of my dad's binoculars. I wasn't a bird watcher. I didn't know any bird watchers or anything in those days. And I remember I looked at a robin through this pair of binoculars and it blew me away, the, 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 the sight through these binoculars. And I basically became a bird watcher from then, mm-hmm. self-taught. I mean, we're talking the 70s, no internet or anything like that now in those days. And over the years progressed and uh, I went off to university. I went to medical school and went off to uh, Kenya in 1982, uh, not owning a camera in those days, but borrowed my brother's camera uh, and managed. I was working out was essentially a medical student in, in, in Kenya, but had some time off and managed to get a, a few days of a safari while I was there and started taking wildlife photographs then that was 1982 right and carried on ever since basically so is it always been a hobby or is it is it a career or how, how do you make money out of it uh, not well enough to keep me in uh, in in anything else but 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 photography right okay <laughs> no it, it's 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 just a passion um having said that uh I I'm retired as a GP now. I've been a GP for 30 years and retired three, four years ago. 
Uh, I still do a bit of medicine uh, now, but my I've always been a naturalist ever since I can remember. And one of the um, benefits of that is I've been invited to speak on cruise ships around the world. I'm uh, a member of the uh, the uh, tour leaders for a, a UK holiday company called Nature Trek. I hope I can mention their name. Uh, and I lead wildlife trips around the world. And I'm also regularly asked to work on expedition ships in the Arctic or Antarctica. Brilliant. Um, and but but I've always been a photographer. And I'm, I've all also um, gained a fellowship in the Royal, from the Royal Photographic Society uh, in wildlife photography, which is a sort of fairly tough thing to, to, be, to achieve, but it's given me more, you know, peer review is great when you, when you talk about wildlife photography, Not, you know, to know that you're doing things as you could do in terms of what the standards are but it's a i now actually sit on the um the distinctions panel for the royal photographic society for wildlife photography for people around the world actually who submit their work to see whether it comes up to the standard required for the royal photographic society mm -hmm. sorry it's a rambling no rambling that's, that's that's perfect so did you start off photo, photo, taking photos of birds and then moved on to larger mammals or, or insects or how how is that progressed yeah i think that's probably a good uh, distillation i mean like most bird watchers or who become naturalists they start off with a fascination for birds and then in the uk this time of the year bird wise it tends to slow down a bit because many of the birds are breeding and they're secretive a bit harder to see so a lot of bird watchers then start looking into other things like dragonflies and plants and so on. And that's really how most naturalists in the UK, I would imagine, evolve from a birdwatcher. And I, I was just the same in that respect. So now my interest in natural history is, as you mentioned from my website, it covers pretty well everything. Birds, mammals, insects, moths, butterflies, fungi, everything in the natural world. And I see a lot of the pictures taken overseas. Are they taken away when you've been on these cruises or on these expedition ships? Is that is that or on holiday? A combination, really. So when I'm when I'm leading my wildlife trips, uh, it gives me the opportunity sometimes to take photographs there. I've, I've become now um, more of a photography <laughs> wildlife lead. So I'm not only showing people wildlife, but I'm also, uh, my role is to encourage people to take better photographs of the wildlife when they're on these foreign trips mm -hmm. uh, and to give them guidance and, and, and sort of critiques as, as we go along, which is great fun to do. But also when I'm speaking on the cruises and on expedition ships, that's also another opportunity. But in my spare time, if I can call it that, my wife and I enjoy traveling independently as well. So we often uh, use that as an opportunity to get take photographs too. So on the cruise ships, are they just general cruise ships where you're speaking uh, uh, quite more generalist or are the cruise ships more for for people interested in photography and wildlife as a whole? Um, I think I would probably categorize them as general cruises, but you'll oft, I'll often find that during the course of a cruise, you'll get a, a sort of a number of passengers whose main interest is in wildlife. Mm -hmm. And in addition to... Uh, coming to my talks, which are often wildlife themed, but not always. I mean, for example, I, I do a very, uh, one of my favorite talks is on scurvy, believe it or not, okay. the history of scurvy in, in, in the maritime world. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people will turn up on a regular basis if they've got a particular passion for the wildlife. And I'll sometimes lead trips 
when, when the ship calls in at port, I'll, I'll organize a, a group of, and take some passengers with me who are particularly keen on the wildlife. Uh, but yeah, on the expedition ships, uh, which are slightly different, there you've generally got people who who have a higher degree of interest in in the in the natural world, and you know, so that if you like, I cover all niches in that in that respect. Mm-hmm. So, what camera or cameras do you use now, and what have you used in the past? Then, because we have to have massive telephoto lens for some of the work that you're doing, do you? Mm. Yes, uh, you're right. Well, as, as that first camera I took with me to, to Kenya, in fact, I broke it. Oh, <laughs> My no. brother's not listening because it was his camera. That was a Zenith E, if you yeah. can remember. Those, those uh, early Russian, uh, they were built like tanks, but in spite of that, I somehow managed to break it after about three weeks in, in Kenya. That was my first uh, uh, camera. Then I think I, I bought an, a Pentax ME Super. Right. It was another one after that. And then I eventually went on to digital uh, in 2000, and I was a Nikon user in those days. Um, um, then I had a, a problem with one of the cameras while I was working, while I was on a ship, rather, uh, in Greenland. Uh, the camera broke, and I was, in, I was in two minds what to do. And at that time, Canon, for a wildlife photography perspective were leading in terms of their kit so mm-hmm. i actually jumped ship metaphorically speaking and went from uh, nikon to canon at that point but more recently within the last year i've changed completely now to sony i've gone to a mirrorless camera system um i've, I've got a sony a9 and a sony a7r4 uh, but you're right, it's the lenses that are almost, if not, in fact, more important mm. from the wildlife perspective. So you never have enough reach uh, in your lenses as a wildlife photographer. If you're photographing distant birds, distant mammals, the more the telephoto lens that you've got, the better. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I've used 500 millimeter um, prime lenses. At the moment, my best lens that I use is a 200 to 600 millimeter zoom for, uh, for Sony. Mm-hmm. So was it a big step from um, from 35 millimeter or um, up to digital or, or was that something oh, you, you, you really embraced and thought that was the best thing ever? At the time digital came out, I went digital in 2000 and I, I probably about two, uh, what, 1998 or something like that, everybody was really singing the praises of digital and I swore I'd never ever go digital. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Australia with my wife on a, on a sort of a, a, a holiday to see some friends down there. I took 40 rolls of Kodak, uh, Kodak, what would it have been called? Um, Kodachrome yes. 64, uh, which in those days, goodness knows how much that would have cost me, 10 pounds a roll or something, probably even more. Uh, and sadly, um, I lost and had destroyed, unfortunately, by Kodak, 18 rolls of film. Oh, and uh, unfortunately, there was no way of getting your photographs back. And so I thought, that's it. I, I'm not going to stick this anymore. I went digital and I've, I've never looked back, basically. Digital gives you so much more, uh, you know, not let alone if 40 rolls of Kodachrome, you know, you can put... I don't know, 5,000 pictures on a, on a card today won't cost you a penny to, once you bought the kit to, 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 you know, keep those images. Whereas if you had 5,000 pictures in 
uh, slide format, that mm-hmm. might be very expensive. I think the big difference is as well, you can just keep your finger on that shutter and keep get, get lots of different pictures and find the one that looks half decent, don't you? You're absolutely right. And that's, for, again, another wildlife... Because I photograph flowers, I photograph birds. If I'm photographing a bird, I might, I might want to use the full 20 frames a second that yeah. my Sony camera gives me because... And people might say, well, why do you need to run it so fast? Why wouldn't one photograph do? Well, you're absolutely right, John. If you've got 20 shots, one of those will usually stand out a mm-hmm. lot more than the other 19, maybe because the bird's eye was slightly closed or it was slightly turned at a funny angle or whatever. Whereas if I'm photographing a plant, okay, it might blow a little bit in the breeze. I'll only be taking one shot at a time. Yeah, and I think where actually... And it, then I think it gives the amateur as well, not just professional, a lot more scope, doesn't it? Because actually they, they can take lots of pictures and actually out of the 20, 30, 40 pictures they're taking, suddenly there's something that looks half reasonable that they can yeah. use and, and, and feel proud of, can't they, really? Exactly. And, the, 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 you know, the, the problem then, though, of course, is the computer time to look at it at, at the end of the day. You know, it's nice to go out into the field, photograph your flowers, photograph your birds, whatever, but... That's the enjoy, enjoyable bit. The pain it, the, is at the end of the day to sit in front of your computer screen and go through all of these pictures and get rid of the rubbish. Which is something you didn't have to do when you had films before. You just looked no. at them. Somebody did that work for you where you can exactly. sit down and I suspect you can spend as much time, if not more, sat in front of the computer editing and making those pictures to the best that, of, 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 your, of your ability. You're absolutely right. That's that's the time-consuming bit. But you know, it's a labor. I see it as a labor of love. You know, it's it's a, it's a nice thing to be able to do, mm-hmm. especially of course in the middle of the current situation. <laughs> that's right. Over the years, have you had, have you had any exhibitions? Has your work been showcased anywhere for the public to see? Yeah, I I submit images to a couple of agencies, and that that brings in a small income over the course of the year. Um, you know, it's so, and I've, as I say, I've set, I've, um, I sit on the RPS, the Royal Photographic Society. So I went through from an associateship, first of all, and then went on to get the uh, fellowship after that. I submit stuff to exhibitions all over the place. Um, most recently, uh, to the uh, Natural History, um, BBC Natural History Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition. Um, I had a couple selected, but of course that came just before the uh, lockdown uh, and didn't quite make the final cut. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, there are always these opportunities out there. Is there one picture you're particularly proud of? Like, you know, at the end, this sounds terrible, so <laughs> on the epitaph, is, this is the picture that means the most. You might, I suppose, let's have one that is for, for the correctness of that photograph and also one that has a story behind it as well. Let's okay. have two pictures That's, then. Thanks. Thank you for adding that other bit there, John. Because, right, the one I'm, I, I really enjoyed taking a photograph, I'm into hummingbirds. Yes. And hummingbirds only occur in the Americas, mm-hmm. mainly around Central America and South America, but a few going into North America and one or two going all the way, all the way up as far as Alaska. Right. But the majority are in Central and particularly South America. The, the small, I mean, ever since I was just a child, I remember reading what the smallest bird on earth was, and mm-hmm. that's the, the bee hummingbird. Uh, so-called because, in fact, it's not much bigger than a bee. In fact, there are plenty of insects bigger than this bird. Okay. 
but it only occurs in Cuba. It's unique to Cuba. And unfortunately now it's actually threatened with extinction because of habitat loss and, and so on. And so I was lucky enough to go to Cuba with my wife for a, a family holiday. And it was number one target for me to see this bird. And we, we did, the, the pair of us, and we were, we were taken there, but with a guide. And I managed to get um, some great photographs of it. And, you know, to see this bird, let alone photograph it, is just, you know, took my breath away mm -hmm. but to get some reasonably good photographs which i'm really proud of as well so so that would be the answer to to the first part of the question mm -hmm. this this sorry john no, 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 i was going to say this the story one the, the, the one next one is the one with the the best story about it isn't it because there's okay. always there's always one isn't there I, I probably ought to preempt this by saying that whenever I go on any of my foreign travels, I've done a bit of research beforehand to look for things that might be seen there. You know, some are more common, some are less common. And I think it was 2017, we went to Vietnam for a family, you know, just my wife and I on a holiday again. And I'd read that on the Mekong Delta, um, the guide that we'd, we'd arranged, a, a Vietnamese guide that we, we met, he, he's actually a lecturer in the university in um, what was Saigon, what's it called nowadays, um, Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, he had taken some Russian scientists to the Mekong Delta the year before, and they found four or five of one of the rarest birds in the world called the spoon-billed sandpiper. Cooked. This is a shorebird, mm -hmm. not much bigger than a blackbird, probably smaller than a blackbird actually, which breeds in Eastern Asia, on, in sort of Eastern Russia, and then moves south for the winter and winters around the coast of China and um, um, uh, Thailand and, and one or two other places, but it was vanishing off the face of the earth. It was so threatened with extinction. There was probably less than 200 individuals alive at that time. And I really wanted to try and find one of these things on the Mekong Delta. So at the end of the holiday, we ended up on the Mekong. And if you can imagine a mud flat, all right, not sand, mud. <laughs> I ended up walking out on this mud uh, up to my knees, literally, carrying this 500 mil lens and a tripod over my shoulder. Uh, I went out probably about a half or three quarters of a kilometer from the, the shoreline looking for one of these birds. And I came across a bird in the distance and I couldn't quite make it out. And I just got my binoculars onto this and put my camera up, just took a photo just, to, just as a record shot really to mm -hmm. hope that it was actually the bird. And the more I looked at this bird, the more it was pretty obvious that's what it was. It's a unique bird because from its name, it's got a spoon-shaped beak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was actually, I was reasonably certain that was it. Anyway, I got this photograph and I thought, right, now it's time to move a little bit nearer because I've got my record shot. And now I can try and approach this bird, get some closer shots, etc., etc. As soon as I started moving, something made this bird fly off and I never saw it again. <laughs> but I knew that's what the bird was. And anyway, so there I'm absolutely delighted with, with, with this uh, situation. By now, my knees, I'm up to my knees in mud. I'm, I'm, I had no shoes on. I had a pair of flip-flops as I started to walk out on the mud. I lost them within the first 10 yards. I never saw them again. 
So you can imagine now, here am I wondering with every footstep down to my knees, am I going to tread on a, a, a sharp um, uh, shell of some sort? Am I going to tread on an unexploded munitions because there's still a lot of unexploded munitions out there from the, the Vietnam, what we would call the Vietnam War. Interestingly, in Vietnam, they call it the American War, by the way. And so I was sort of very wary of not only all of that, but also falling on this deep mud with my expensive camera lens equipment. Luckily, I managed to make it back to the shore intact. And on my website, there is that photograph. And I make the point on the first page saying, it, as a photograph, it's nothing much to look at. It will never win any photographic competitions anywhere. But for me, it was so precious to get that one record shot of this extremely rare bird. And what a memory as well. What, what an ordeal to get that photo as well. That must look back. Because those are the things where you hear, this, you must have thought at some point, this is absolutely crazy. Up to my oh, knees yeah. in mud. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But I'm going for it, aren't I? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That's brilliant. So, trips around the world. The next thing is you've been, you see, your fantastic trips you've had both on holidays and on ships around. What is the trip of a lifetime for you when you look back and go, that was the trip of a lifetime? Again, I suppose looking with your photography head on as well, you know, is, is there a trip that you've, you can look back and go, that was a trip which is going to be hard to beat? Yeah, I mean, Antarctica has always been a draw for me, both from the, the wildlife perspective, uh, the geography. I, I, I did, a, I did a, 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 an honours BSc in natural science and uh, environmental sciences with the, with the Open University while I was working as a doctor. And that taught me a lot of things about geography, geology, oceanography, and to see somewhere like Antarctica, that unique environment was fantastic, but obviously the wildlife that's there. But also, from my perspective, the historical aspects to it, the, you know, Shackleton, Scott, and all the other explorers of their day who, who went down. Captain Cook, I just read a, a Captain Cook's journals from the time he actually went south of the Antarctic Circle in 1774 or something. Can you imagine that? And uh, last year, I managed to get south of the Antarctic Circle for the first time myself. I've been lucky. I've, I've been to Antarctica, I think it's about 14 times now. Wow. And on the last trip, for the first time, I managed to get south of the Antarctic Circle. Normally, you can't. Most, most sort of ships don't bother doing that, A, because it's a long way south, and B, the state of the ice has to be just right to, you know, from the safety perspective. And we were really lucky that year. And what kind of wildlife are you f f taking photos of when you're there then? So you inevitably the penguins, mm -hmm. uh, they're a huge draw for everybody that goes down there. But then you've got the fur seals, you've got the whales, you've got the elephant seals, uh, you've got the, uh, on South Georgia, which is technically, I suppose, not Antarctica, but it effectively is, yeah. uh, you've got the smallest land bird in the world sorry the the, the <clears throat> excuse me the land bird that occurs further south than any other in the in the world this is a bird not much bigger than a sparrow mm -hmm. that lives in this glaciated environment the whole time um but then also the the whales of course i mean the, at one point, we were on our way to South Georgia, and the next, uh, we were about, I don't know, 50 miles uh, west of South Georgia, and the ship was completely surrounded. And I mean, 
all the way to the horizon, 360 degrees by spouting whales. Wow. We reckon there were probably 400 humpback whales around mm -hmm. us at that time, which was just really amazing. And were they just being attracted to the ship then? Is that what was, they were just being attracted to the, the noise of the ship or? No, no, no. Uh, it's much more likely that they were all in a feeding frenzy because of the krill. The, the krill is, the, is, if you like, the basis of all life down in Antarctica. Uh, I believe Sir David Attenborough set, stated that the, the krill, which is, a, you can imagine, a prawn, basically, mm -hmm. it's going to be the most numerous organism on Earth. And the seas around Antarctica are just full of this stuff, and everything feeds on it. Mm -hmm. So from the whales, uh, the seals, the penguins, you know, all the way through up to the orca, which uses, uh, you know, the, the, base, the, the, the base of the food chain there, which is, the, um, which is krill. So all these whales were uh, probably just feeding on this huge abundance of krill in the ocean in that part. Fantastic. That's brilliant. So we're going to talk a little bit about the GPS because it is the GPS yeah. training podcast. So <laughs> that would be doing my job probably. before I come on to some fun questions. It is what what have you been using the GPS for? And and have you still got the E-Trex Touch? You got an E-Trex Touch? Yeah. Is that correct? Is oh look at that! People can't see it because they can't see, but I can actually see you via right. Zoom because yes. um, we're recording. But you've still got your E-Trex Touch Twenty Five by the looks. So E-Trex Touch Twenty Five. What have you been using that for when you've been using doing for your photography work? Yeah. It's, it's been a great purchase from my perspective because one of the things I mainly wanted it for was to identify where I'd seen species, whether it's plants or mammals, birds, in the, anywhere in the world. And I can, whilst I'm there, at that particular point on Earth, I can press the button and save it as a waypoint. Uh -huh. um, and that's really, really helpful. And I don't need to be traveling huge, you know, all the way around the world to see that as a benefit. The other thing, I, in the UK, for example, I'm very, very keen on orchids. Right. And there are, some orchids are much more common than others. And there's one species of orchid we have in North Norfolk, which is where I live, uh, called creeping ladies' tresses. I'm not making this up. <laughs> creeping, you know, you know what that means, lady, you know what lady means, tresses as in hair. <laughs> yes, okay? Uh, and it's a beautiful little orchid, but it's so tiny. It's only about two and a half, three inches tall. Mm -hmm. And there's only one site in North Norfolk where it occurs, and that's in a thick pine forest. And it's incredibly difficult to find. You know, you could be walking two or three days trying to find this thing, even though you've already been there in the past, trying mm -hmm. to remember these places. So the, the E-Trex 25 was brilliant from that perspective because I found it again last year, took the E-Trex with me, located it, and I now know that whenever I go back to find it uh, next year, hopefully, I will know exactly where to track it down. That's brilliant. So that, but also, from my this really where it came into a, a, another use for the E-Trex was the um, Antarctic trips. Mm -hmm. Because I used to leave the uh, the, the GPS e tracks up in the bridge okay. on the ship. Uh, on certain ships, uh, certainly the expedition ships, there's an open bridge policy. So all the all the guests, all the expedition team, everybody's allowed to go into the bridge, unless there's bad weather or something like that. That, and I would be leaving my GPS in the bridge on the window still, knowing I've got a signal from the satellite. 
and it would plot my route the whole way around mm. wherever we went, which mm-hmm. was wonderful to look back on. I can imagine because then you could overlay it on the map and see exactly where you've been on that journey, haven't you? Exactly, that's right. That's that's really where I'm. What I meant because you know it. How else could you do it? No, that's right. And especially as soon as you've been back so many times, you actually compare routes from where you've been before and see if you go to the same place, etc. Couldn't you? Yeah, yeah. It's it's. There are so many benefits to it, and you know it's so easy to use. You know, you just. You know, you, you just look back and some of the places that you've been to, and, and I think it's fantastic for my use as a, as a naturalist, as a wildlife enthusiast. I went to Latvia last year and led a wildlife trip out there, which was great. It's the first time I've been there. And we came across a, a bird called a Ural owl, uh, which is what Europe, one of Europe's largest owls. They're very shy. There aren't many of them around, and this one was quite uh, hidden deep in forests. Now, the good thing about these owls is they, they are creatures of habit. They don't tend to move around too much. So it was easy for me to just take uh, a GPS, put it as a waypoint where this bird was, knowing that subsequent years it's likely, if we go back to the same place, that it's going to be there again, and I'd be able to show the clients uh, on future trips. I should have led another one, uh, another trip to Latvia in April, of course, but that hasn't happened. But maybe next year, um, that we'll do the, you know, we'll follow the the waypoint from last year and come up with the goods again. So it's quite interesting because you, so you're using it really for two tasks, well, three tasks really, using when you're on the ship to record where you've been, which is the track of where you've been, and then you're creating waypoints of locations you want to go back to, but then also you're creating it for waypoints of places where you would need to say where you took that picture from. So really those are the three tools that you're using for, which are the basics of any outdoor GPS unit really, isn't it? You're right, but actually I think one of the, Going back to when I purchased the, 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 the device, the main reason I did the one-to-one uh, with Ian was because I knew I had another Antarctic trip lined up and I needed to, in anywhere is uh, the weather is unpredictable, but if it, if it becomes unpredictable in, in Antarctica and you know, you're on shore uh, and your ship is out in the bay somewhere, uh, you need to be able to, find your way back to the zodiacs to get back to the ship in a hurry you know if it becomes foggy or if there's a whiteout with snow which can easily happen and so that's really what drew uh, led me to do that one-to-one uh, for the upcoming antarctic trip and that was again very very useful experience for that so that's doing the backtrack back to where you the came backtrack, from yeah. and then you can yeah. take back to where you came from that's fantastic mm-hmm. So just to finish off then, just thinking that many of our listeners will be photographers. I'm, I quite enjoy taking photographs myself. If you could have one top tip that you could give our customers on being a better wildlife shot, what would that be? Ooh, it's difficult to put it all into one, pers- one answer. Right, I'll let you have two, maybe okay, three two. top First, tips and two them. Thank you. First one is know your subject. Yes, Okay, so, you know, where are the birds going to be? What time of the year? At altitude, at sea level, whatever. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, which is someone told me this when I first went digital, shoot in RAW. Okay, yeah. Uh, Because you've got, if you go back to the days of prints and slides, the RAW image gives you that same sort of amount of detail and information that you used to have in slide and and uh, print print days 
and negative days. Whereas if you shoot in JPEG, your camera is taking away bits of information from that image. You're telling the camera to remove some of the data. Mm-hmm. If you've got all the data that you could possibly have, you can use so much more with it, or you can do so much more with it, I should say. So much so, in fact, that I'm... And as um, processing uh, technology improves over the years, I mean, I use Photoshop quite a lot. By the way, I'm colorblind. Uh, (laughs) And that's a question in itself as a wildlife uh, photographer. People always say, well, how can you... take photographs if you're if you're colorblind well of course i don't manipulate colors that's the one area i don't touch on photoshop but what i was about to say was i've taken photos 10 years ago that i couldn't really do a great deal with but as time's gone on and new developments have come out with photoshop and other software it's allowed me to look back at those images because they're raw files from 10 years ago that i can now do things a lot better with them than i could 10 years ago say as a big a guy who's kind of very much in technology, these raw files will be massive file sizes, are they not very large file sizes? They are a lot bigger than JPEG, there's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, if you look at photography as a whole, just about the cheapest aspect to it these days is memory. Mm-hmm. Okay, whether it's a, a hard disk on your computer or a, or a portable drive, Compared to, say, the cost of a camera or the cost of a lens, these are the cheaper elements to the to the hobby, if you like. Yeah. And I suppose going back to our earlier conversation where we talked about the cost of film and processing that film, actually an external hard drive to store all those raw files on that potentially can come back in a number of years' time and edit them and make them better is actually a nominal cost compared to what you were spending at the start of your hobby. Yes, of course. And it, and it's not for everybody. I, I can totally understand people saying, well, look, I haven't got all the time to sit behind a desk looking at my pictures on a computer screen. Absolutely no problem at all. Shoot shoot with JPEG. Um, but if you are going to take it to, you know, your hobby if, if to a higher level, if you like, and want to get the best possible quality, I would still suggest that you think about shooting in RAW. That's fantastic. Bria, I, can just, I must thank you massive. It's been a really in, not a great chat, and, and, and I've, I've got loads from it. And actually, hopefully our listeners will go out there and uh, yeah, take some great shots um, going forward. So thank you very much for joining me on the GPS Training Podcast. If Your website is um, www.wildlifeontheweb.co.uk. That's correct, isn't it? It's absolutely right. That's it, uh, John. And you'll find most of my favourite images on there. Um, hot off the press, I've also got um, a, a live camera on a, inside a Swift nest box. Okay. We've got Swifts nesting on our house. We've had them for years. And there's a link on my website to a live camera, which is should be operating 24-7. And, you know, if people want to get looking at that, that that's great fun to watch watch these pretty unusual birds. Most people, A lot of people have seen um, blue tits in nest boxes and robins and so on but swifts are a bit different and you know there's the, they are in decline so it's worth you know perhaps spending a minute or two just having a look okay i must i think they must say i want to jump on after i come off this interview and have a look at myself <laughs> fantastic so right. thank thank you very much for joining me today. i say it's been fantastic it's been a really nice chat and uh it's been some yeah some interesting things it's nice to see how you've used the gps alongside the camera and actually i think the journey over the years of how your photography has progressed and technology progressed it's been nice to cover those uh, over, over the last yeah 30 minutes 
Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. It's nice to speak to you again after a while. And finally, many thanks for listening to this month's GPS training podcast. If there's anybody you think we should interview for future episodes, please do get in touch. Please do get in touch with ourselves, especially if you're thinking about buying an outdoor GPS unit. And please also take a look at both our physical GPS training courses and also our webinars. Just go to our website, which is gpstraining.co.uk and click on GPS training courses. Please do tell your friends about the GPS training podcast and encourage them to subscribe on whichever podcast app they they, they listen to podcasts on. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. And if you can leave us a snazzy review, please do. It's always appreciated. Many thanks to Kevin for joining me on this month's GPS Training Podcast. And whatever you're doing over the coming weeks, please do stay stay safe and keep in touch. Thanks for listening to the GPS Training Podcast, the monthly podcast keeping you up to date with everything in the world of outdoor GPS navigation. 